And hello from still snowy Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And because it's mid-April, we're looking outside our window, and it is snowing, and snowing pretty good here for, well, especially for mid-April. But uh, it, it, you know, what better way to wrap up what's <laughs> left of the uh, final pieces of legislation from 2017, and we'll get to that. Um, but Clark, I wanted you to get us started uh, talking about a piece that you posted on Thursday, uh, a deeper dive into the whole issue of teacher evaluations, talking to the woman who is kind of at the forefront in the, the whole science of how we evaluate teachers. Yeah, I had a chance to interview Charlotte Danielson earlier this week. Uh, Charlotte Danielson is a longtime educator, author, and, co- and consultant, and she actually developed and wrote, most people call it the Danielson Framework, but it's the Framework for Teaching, which in Idaho and in many places in the country is a widely used uh, tool for defining effective teaching and instruction. It's used uh, as professional development in some states. It's used as an evaluation tool in other states. Uh, but anyways, uh, Charlotte Danielson gave a keynote address the week before in Boise. I met her at that conference. Uh, we didn't get a chance to really talk too much then, but I interviewed her uh, as a follow-up this week. And we really got into taking a look at some of these ongoing issues with the accuracy, the validity, and some of the irregularities that we've seen over the last year and a half at this point uh, as Idaho Education News has examined the teacher evaluations controversy. I thought it was important to talk to Charlotte Danielson because she is the expert. She developed uh, this tool and um, she's paid to give uh, speeches and and run professional development uh, regarding this. And so One of the most interesting things to me was Charlotte Danielson said she does not have confidence um, that it is being used uh, in a valid way to award raises in the state of Idaho. She said that uh, she wants to ensure that the right teachers are given the raises, and based on what she knows, she does not have that confidence. Uh, And there were a couple of things that she was concerned about. One, she said that local teachers and administ- or local principals and administrators were put in charge of these evaluations, and they may not have had uh, all the proper training mm-hmm. to be up to speed on using uh, the evaluation tool, the Danielson Framework tool, um, in a valid manner. She also pointed out that, hey, there's a lot of societal pressures and social pressures on a building principal evaluating his or her own staff, mm-hmm. and she thinks that that plays out that there's a tendency for local administrators to be lenient. And we got into the thing which we first reported on in in June 2015 where a number of school districts, more than 30 school districts and charters in the state of Idaho, reported to the state that every single teacher received an overall uh, identical evaluation score of proficient. We had raised questions about that for about a year and a half now. Uh, I talked to Charlotte Danielson about it and she said it's baloney. She said that it's a major red flag. Uh, She said that that just doesn't align with what we know about teaching in the state of Idaho. And I want to be real clear here. Oh, real clear here that just um, she said it's perfectly acceptable uh, for teachers in the beginning part of their career to get a basic, which is another degree of good. And she's not. I was going to say, I mean, she envisions a bell curve here. She envisions. Uh, very few distinguished teachers that that really is for above and beyond for, yeah. for superstars. 
uh, but proficient and basic are kind of almost shades of the same thing. Basic maybe is more applicable to, to a, a new teacher, a young teacher, um, somebody new to the profession. And the basic is not an indictment. It's no. a, you're doing pretty well, you know, you're getting there. And then towards the end, then you'd have the, the below basic, uh, you know. So she sees a very different kind of kind of curve than what we're seeing in a lot of the reports that have come into the state. Yeah, she said it, it just, she said... And she said Idaho's not the only state that's like this, but she said a lot of times when local administrators do the evaluations, you see something like 97, 98% of teachers uh, getting the top two scores. And she said that's just fiction, that it doesn't align uh, with what we know about teaching in America. She says, and this is an interesting point, and it could apply to a, a teacher in, in, in the first part of her career, that they are seeing things for, and doing things for the very first time. They're managing a classroom for the very first time. They're conducting assessment for the very first time. Uh, they're lesson planning for the very first time. And you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be at the level of, say, a 12-year veteran teacher um, who's had a chance to develop and refine their skills and take advantage of peer mentoring and professional development. It, will be, it would be very hard for a beginning teacher to be a distinguished teacher. Sure. But, Just like saying. beginning journalists and beginning doctors are learning things for the first time and, and they're building up uh, their own skills. But I want to be clear here that Charlotte Danielson was not using this interview as a chance to attack teachers or say that teachers are bad. Uh, she's a champion uh, for educators. She told uh, the group in Boise that they have the most uh, complicated uh, job in the world. The teachers make hundreds of decisions every hour and they come home exhausted uh, and that there's a reason for that. But she also said that it would be normal for beginning teachers to uh, have scores in the basic realm and that um, it doesn't make sense when you see everybody get the same overall evaluation score. Uh, so I thought right. that that I was mean, interesting. Her concerns were how these evaluations are being done, how the scores are being awarded. And really the bigger question, and we've heard this discussed now for years, is this framework a good evaluations tool or is it better used in a professional development capacity as opposed to a, a tool to decide who gets a pay raise and, and, and who doesn't? Sure, and we talked about that, and, and the tool originated because uh, Charlotte Danielson determined that there was no real universal definition of what constitutes good and great teaching uh, in this country, and so she worked uh, with these consulting groups to develop this over a series of years. Initially, it was designed to inform instruction uh, to help improve the craft of teaching, uh, but it has branched out and been used for other areas, including evaluations. Idaho's not the only state that uses it for evaluations. Um, and, and, and Charlotte said, you know, there are a number of different ways that it's be, being used. A lot of those ways are valid, uh, including evaluations, but she does have mixed feelings when it comes to the evaluations then being tied to these high-stakes decisions mm -hmm. when we cannot ensure uh, validity of, of evaluations. And so to extrapolate on Charlotte's thinking, what's one example of how this could maybe be a problem down the line? Well, it could potentially create an unequal playing field where you've got school district A in the state of Idaho where the administrator awards every single teacher an overall score of proficient. That's enough to help them advance through the career ladder and earn a raise, uh, whether or not those teachers actually earned the score of proficient. Let's say School District B, um, the teachers were critiqued uh, maybe a little bit more accurately, and not everybody got 
a proficient, and so somebody missed out on a raise in one district, whereas their counterpart in another district did not miss out on a raise. You could. And it, it, it gets to the whole training issue, right. doesn't it? I mean, you want uh, this to be applied in such a manner that a proficient score in District A it pretty much measures the same thing as a proficient score in District B 50 miles down the road. Because yeah. uh, you do want some consistency. Back to the training issue, as you talked about it a few minutes ago, we will be tracking the $1 million that the state is putting into training yeah. for for principals who, who do perform the evaluation. So we'll keep an, an eye on how that is used and whether that has any sort of an impact on the uh, on the finished product. Sure. If you want to check out that report, head over to IdahoEdNews.org. You can find out a little bit more uh, about Charlotte Daniels Students' perspective. I also, if you're really interested, included a link to uh, a piece that she wrote last year for Education Week, totally in her own words, uh, about her thoughts and concerns uh, with evaluations. Uh, so check out that link at the bottom of my story. Real good piece. A really good follow-up and a really good perspective on an issue that uh, you've been covering very closely. Yeah, I, I felt lucky that she uh, was as generous with her time uh, as she was, especially after she left town. So you can check that out. I want to circle back, though. We started off kind of alluding to the fact that uh, the dust is starting to settle on the legislative session. Uh, that we did get some resolution on the final bills relating to uh, that had budget implications and education implications. Uh, catch us up to speed, Kevin, with what we saw this week. Okay, so the, the big bills that we were watching, um, the $300-plus million transportation infrastructure bill, the governor allowed that to become law without his signature. He did likewise with a smaller but related bill uh, that will allow the state to put some money into uh, sidewalks, crosswalks, pedestrian islands, uh, safe routes to school yeah. projects near school buildings. But the big headline, not a, really a surprise, pretty uh, pretty thoroughly foreshadowed by the governor. He uh, vetoed the, uh, the grocery tax repeal uh, on Tuesday evening. You were scrambling Tuesday night to, uh, to get us caught up on that. Uh, not really a surprise. Uh, the governor had pretty much made it clear that he wasn't... Uh, convinced that it was good tax policy, he was concerned about the $80 million hit on the general fund, how that would affect education. Yeah. He was also concerned really about the $15 million hit on the general fund in that transportation package, the siphoning of sales tax dollars away from the general fund, potentially away from public schools and other programs into transportation. So kind of a consistent theme from the governor this week. But wow, the reaction, uh, even heading into this veto and past the veto, very strong, very strident response from a lot of uh, conservatives and conservative lawmakers. I mean, it's it's very interesting to kind of see the reaction uh, where we've got you know lawmakers and, and activists who are basically of, of the governor's uh, <laughs> party line who are as defiant of the governor, even mocking the governor publicly on this. I mean, it is a very, very tense situation that seems to be brewing within the GOP. We've known that that rift existed. I just haven't seen it bubble up as prominently and as publicly and, and as and as stridently as we've seen it in the past few days. Yeah, and, and so what this means, maybe perhaps why there was such a strong reaction, this this kills tax relief in the state of Idaho it does. Uh, for the year. Uh, and we're going to be coming into a tough, perhaps, primary election uh, for many legislators and state officials, but not Governor Otter, uh, next year. But let's talk a little bit more, uh, just quickly, about 
some of the members of the house, suggesting there could be a challenge on this veto, Kevin? What does it say? Right, right. The other uh, development we had on Wednesday, a couple of uh, conservative House members, Brian Zollinger from Idaho Falls, Ron Nate from Rexburg, held a press conference in eastern Idaho, said they are prepared to uh, mount a legal challenge saying that the veto was not delivered in a timely fashion. Now, uh, this becomes an an issue of how long does the governor have to veto a bill that comes comes, uh, on a bill that he receives after the legislative session. The governor contends that he, he, he executed the veto in time with the Tuesday evening veto. Uh, Zollinger and Nate are saying, no, he, he needed to do it a day earlier. So, yeah, he, no, matter what hap- no matter what happens with the timing on this veto and whatever happens with the legal challenge, it, it just serves to underscore that you've got legislators who really wanted to see some form of tax relief who still believe that the grocery tax is a, a viable vehicle for tax relief. So expect this push to continue, uh, even if the legal challenge goes nowhere. Expect this to be an issue in the 2018 legislative session, potentially an issue in the 2018 elections. Yeah. You've had gubernatorial candidates uh, saying that they want to see this grocery tax repealed. So you know, I, I think you've still got this, you know, this unrest that's really developed within the GOP. A lot of it directed right at Governor Otter to the point where uh, the Idaho Freedom Foundation, a conservative group that was really pushing for the repeal, has... Uh, taken now to counting the days left in the governor's term. So They've suggested that he may have been abducted by aliens. And, uh, <laughs> Alien the, abduction, and their America's worst governor. The communications director said he's America's worst governor before the Alabama governor resigned amid controversy, yeah, but that's I mean, another story. Yeah, really, I mean, you know, to be America's worst governor is, is it would take some doing, right? But yeah. uh, it just it, it just goes to show that uh, right now the the ill feelings and, and the friction within the Republican Party uh, it's very pronounced. Maybe time heals wounds. It is nine months until the legislative session, but I don't think so. I think there is well, a lot of bad blood that is going to continue <laughs> to percolate and. I, yeah, I, next year's an election year session, so I don't expect uh, the boot to be uh, any lighter. I, I got to tell you though, if the governor was abducted by aliens, that's a huge scoop uh, by the Freedom Foundation that the rest of us missed out on, right? Right. I mean, it, it's got a rival, you know, the Sasquatch sightings <laughs> as, as yeah. you know, the, the tabloid story in Idaho uh, of the decade. But uh, well, stay tuned on that. That issue is not going to go away, even if the legal challenge does. Uh, on a more serious note, Kevin, though, you had a chance to circle back and take a look at some of the projects from the recent spring bond and levy election. Uh, again, that was a big night where uh, almost all of the bonds and levies uh, were approved by local voters uh, throughout the states. But uh, uh, some of those projects are about to get underway, right? Yeah, things are starting to roll. I mean, you had the $695 million worth of bond issues and levies approved in March. And I kind of wanted to take a, a look now to see, all right, you know, what happens now and what can taxpayers and parents and students in these districts expect to see and when. And, of course, it depends on you know which community and which projects you're, you're talking about. But as I found out this week, uh, Boise's moving pretty quickly. They want to get going on replacing a gym at Boise High School that dates back to 1936. Yeah. <laughs> they want to get moving on 
replacing Amity Elementary School. That's that funky school in, in Boise that's kind of sunk into the ground with an earth and a roof that's caused nothing but problems since its construction in the late 70s. You know, they're also having to work with some neighborhood concerns on the replacement of uh, Whittier Elementary, which is kind of a little bit west of downtown. So Boise's really busy. West Ada is hoping to finally finish an alternative middle school that's been in the works for a long time, get the, these uh, middle school students out of a uh, collection of portables where they've been for 10 years. Um, CUNA, working really hard on trying to update some curriculum, get rid of some history textbooks that still list Bill Clinton as uh, president. Spoiler alert, he ain't president no more. <laughs> so they want some new curricular materials, but they're also working on a bond issue and, and how to spend the money out of a bond issue and find a site to put in new high school. So it's kind of a, a, a smattering and kind of a cross-section, some, some thumbnails of what, uh, what some districts are doing around the state. I thought it was interesting. I had a chance to talk to the superintendent in Lewiston. Yeah. They have, it was a long process for Lewiston to get voter approval on a new high school, and, and they got the approval last month, third time around with a bond issue. He talked, and I found it more interesting really to talk about process, process leading up to that election and process from here. He talked about, and this blew me away, this is an amazing number, that about a thousand voters registered to vote that day to vote in a in a school bond, but they did not vote in the presidential right. election. Right, a thousand a new voters who didn't participate in the most yeah. the most heated presidential election I've seen in my lifetime, but they did want to vote in a bond issue. That's so amazing. It's it's a remarkable statement of kind of what was going on in that district and the engagement and the interest in that issue. And he was talking about well now. How do we kind of tap into that? Do we have more meetings to keep people up to speed on, the, on this high school project? And he suggested, yeah, I, I think it's going to be important for us to you know, keep that conversation going. So it's not just bricks and mortar when it comes to building a, a high school. In the case of Lewiston, where the, the project has been such a long time coming, uh, part, of the, part of the process is to build upon the community interest. And he right. described the community pride and finally getting over the, uh, the threshold and, and getting some some buy-in on on a project. So interesting stuff, and obviously we will keep a close eye on yeah. the projects as they go because uh, we're just getting underway. I mean, a lot of these buildings, a lot of these schools are going to be two or three years out from... they got to sell bonds and so forth. They, There's a process. They've got to do the financing, they've got to do the design work, and then, you know, in the case of CUNA, you got to figure out exactly where is the best location and then get rolling on the construction. So the buildings won't be up and running overnight, but the process is very definitely underway. Go to IdahoAidNews.org and kind of gets, get caught up on what's happening in five districts around the state. Sure. Another process that is underway is the public hearing process, the public input process regarding the state's science standards. We've talked several times on this podcast about how the legislature approved temporary new science standards this year for the first time since 2001, I believe. Uh, but in doing so, they removed five references to human impact in the environment and global warming. The State Department of Education right now is in a tour uh, across the state to solicit public feedback. Uh, folks also have until almost the end of this month, almost the end of April, uh, to submit comments online at the State Department of Education's website. Our own Devin Bodkin was in Idaho Falls on Thursday night this week where they had one of the early hearings Attendance was real light, looked like five people showed up and urged uh, passage of the complete 
uh, science standards intact. If you want to find out a little bit more about hearings coming up next week in Boise and in North Idaho, um, head to idahoednews.org. Look for that story from Devin about the hearing in Idaho Falls on the science standards. You'll also find a link to make public comment on the State Department of Education's website. And then on Tuesday, I will cover uh, the hearing in Boise and let you know if there are more or less than five people who show up and have a perspective on science standards. And uh, in, in, in all seriousness, seriousness, I wonder how much input the state gets this time around. I mean, this is the third, time. the third time around. Yeah. And will they hear anything really different than what they heard last year? I mean, uh, Sherry Ibarra told the legislature this session that when they went out and did the roadshow and did the public comment process in 2016, that they got about 400 comments, and all but 17 comments were supportive of the science standards. So I don't know what they're going to hear differently, and I don't know who they're going to hear from differently or if it's going to be the same you know, the same interested folks and usual suspects who weighed in a year ago. So we'll, we'll keep a close eye on it. You'll be out there Tuesday night. And we'll, and the reason we'll this matters they... is because this is going back to the 2018 legislature. That's why we keep talking about it. That's why yes. uh, this matters. I think that that covers all this week's headlines. Real quickly, though, Kevin, we're coming up. Uh, to the adventure time of the year for both of us. You've got the first big adventure of the year this weekend. Tell me what it is and whether, in fact, you are a glutton for punishment or not. Oh, I think that's pretty well established because I'm, I'm doing the race to Roby Creek, and, and runners in Boise know this is one of the biggest races of the year in, in Boise, probably the biggest race of the year, and probably the toughest because it's about a 2,000-foot vertical climb for 8.5 miles, and then it's almost a 2,000-foot vertical drop the final four and a half miles it's it's hilly <laughs> and it'll be my fifth go around on it and uh, yeah i i'm a slow learner i guess i just keep doing this but uh, the good news is the snow is supposed to leave the weather is supposed to be pretty much ideal for running a difficult race but it's a fun one and it's a great chance to just sort of hang out and see a lot of a lot of crazy runners all right have fun best of luck to you we will be back next Friday with another brand new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. In the meantime, you can follow at Idaho Ed News on Twitter for all of our latest breaking news during the week. Thanks so much, as always, for listening. We had a lot of fun with this podcast. I hope you enjoy listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. <laughs>